0: In my previous talks, I've given you a practical scriptural definition of repentance. First, the inward change of mind and will. Second, the expression of that change in appropriate outward action. I've also explained the great reason why we all need to repent. As stated in Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or the rebellion of us all. So that's the universal problem of the human race. We've all turned to our own way, which is rebellion. The remedy for rebellion is repentance, turning back to God, forsaking our way, and starting to walk in God's way. I've also shown you the direct connection between repentance and true faith. This is the consistent message of the entire New Testament. That before we can exercise true faith toward God, we must first repent. The order is never varied anywhere in the New Testament. From the message of John the Baptist right through to the message of Paul and even to the message of Jesus to the churches in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the order is first repent, then believe. And yet although the teaching of Scripture concerning repentance is so clear I've often met people, usually religious people, who do not see their own personal need of repentance. They tend to use such phrases as these. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm as good as the next person. I don't see what I need to repent of. Well, today we're going to look and see what the Scripture has to say about such statements and such people as these. First of all, I'd like to go back to a Scripture I quoted yesterday in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Paul's message to the men of Athens. He says this, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere includes you. It includes me. It leaves out no one. If you are saying, well, I don't need to repent, you're arguing with God. God says you do need to repent. Can you see what a serious sin that is? to be correcting God, saying, God, you're telling me about something I don't need to do. That's a very dangerous attitude to be in. God says, you need to repent, I need to repent, we all need to repent. You see, most people have blind spots. There are certain areas in their lives where they have sometimes quite gross sins or failures which they themselves absolutely cannot see. That's why we need to look in the mirror of Scripture and see what God shows us about ourselves, because it's not always the way we think about ourselves or we see ourselves. I'm going to give you three examples today of typical blind spots in people's lives. The first blind spot is unforgiveness, and I'm going to read quite a lengthy passage from Matthew chapter 18, dealing with this blind spot of unforgiveness. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. And then he tells this parable to illustrate this principle. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began this settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him in contemporary values that several million dollars this man owed. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and that is of just a few dollars in today's values. He grabbed him. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers. The literal Greek word is the tormentus, until he should pay back all he owed. And then this is the comment of Jesus. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So you see the application Each of us is like that first servant in our relationship to God who is our master. We owe him an immense debt, millions of dollars, which we have no hope of ever being able to pay. But we turn to God in mercy and he forgives us the entire debt. But then what do we do in our relationship to others? Do we go out and find somebody who owes us a few paltry dollars and say, I'm not going to forgive you. You've got to pay me. I won't offer you forgiveness. Jesus warns us that if we deal with others that way, then this will require that God deals with us, that he withholds his forgiveness from us because we have withheld our forgiveness from others. There's three very solemn lessons to that parable. The first is that unforgiveness is wickedness. The Lord said to that servant, You wicked servant. You see, I've preached in large congregations of Christians, several hundreds of people, when I've preached on the need for forgiveness of others and asked at the end how many people realize their need to forgive, usually at least half the congregation have raised their hands. Religious people, but with a blind spot, they didn't see the terrible sin of unforgiveness in their lives. They didn't realize the awful consequences it was bringing upon them. The second fact is that unforgiveness calls forth God's anger. The Master was angry with that sin The third fact is that unforgiveness puts us in the hands of the tormentors. For many years as a preacher, I wondered why so many Christians were going through so many forms of torment. Spiritual torment, mental torment, emotional torment, physical torment. I thought, how can it be? And then God showed me this principle. If they don't forgive others, my judgment on them is to deliver them to the hands of the tormentors. And once they're in the hands of the tormentors, no preacher can get them out till they meet my conditions of forgiving their fellow men. So there's one blind spot that's common in the lives of many. Another blind spot is what I would call sins of omission. Listen to what James says in chapter 4 verse 17 of his epistle. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. See, they're not merely sins of commission. There are sins of omission. We are sinners sometimes not because we've done something, but because we've done nothing. That's the very sin. When I was um, responsible for training African students in Africa some years back, I used to tell them this little parable of mine. I told them about two men. One man was out of work and his wife and children were starving, so he went out and stole bread to feed his family. And I would say to them, was that a sin? Was stealing a sin? And they would say, yes. I said, there was another man, and I usually made him a teacher because my students were ambitious to become teachers, who was out in his best suit of clothes, and he was walking across a bridge over a river, and he saw a little child in the water drowning. And he could have jumped in and saved that child, but he didn't want to spoil his brand new suit, so he let the child drown. I said, was that a sin? Of course, they'd all say yes. And I'd say, well, what did he do? And they would say nothing and i say there you are you see sometimes doing nothing is a terrible sin to him who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it that's sin and my student would always agree with me that the man who stole bread to feed his hungry children was much less of a sinner than the man who wouldn't spoil his brand new suit to save a drowning child could you be like that person In a world where people are drowning all around you, where there's desperate needs, physical needs, material needs, spiritual needs, are you just preserving your brand new suit and walking around in your self-righteousness? Perhaps God has never been able to show you what a sin that is. The third blind spot I want to speak about just briefly is self-righteousness. Listen to this parable which Jesus related in Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was the religious man, the tax collector was the sinner whom everybody despised. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, how typical, how self-centered. God, I thank you that I am not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is the comment of Jesus. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the basic sin of the Pharisee was pride. He was so satisfied with his own religion, his own religious practices, his own righteousness. And what was typical of him was that he had his little set of rules, which he observed. And they were rules that were taken from God's Word, but they were a very incomplete set of rules. They were tailored to suit his own convenience. There were certain things he did, certain things he didn't do. He based his righteousness on that. Do you know that's typical of religious people? There are multitudes of religious people whose righteousness consists in keeping a set of rules of their own choosing. Could you be one of those? Could you realize that that's not acceptable to God? That you don't go home from church justified when that's your religion? Do you realize that your problem could be a serious one? Self-righteousness, and you've been blind to it?